the following presentation features dramatic reenactments from unpaid robot actors. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And together, we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like spelling? But first, Chris, what's you reading for? What are you reading for? Fairly recently, I bought and read a book. Habits of Success, Getting Every Student Learning. By someone that everyone will recognise in education, Harry Fletcher Wood. It's a terrific little dive into behavioural economics, effectively, and how that impacts upon education. Well worth a read. I think the thing I like about it most is that it takes what I consider to be a real honest, pragmatic approach to this way of looking at schooling. And what I mean by that is it looks at lots of little small things that individually might not add up, might not have this massive impact, but together can add up to something significant. And that aligns quite neatly with what I've found about things in education generally. It's very often the case that if someone says, oh, how do I deal with this bit of behavior or how do I support this? that I find myself saying, well, try these 10 things and in concert that that might, you know, make something happen, but individually, maybe not. So yeah, I, I really love that. There's lots to recommend about it, but for anyone who's interested in behavioral economics in particular, it's a, a must read. Quite uh, luckily, I'm reading a paper, which I'm sure I'll discuss later on as it relates to this week's theme, but it's called Morpheme Frequency in Academic Words, Identifying High Utility Morphemes for Instruction. And that's by Holly B. Lane, Linda Gutlon, and uh, Wilhelmina Van Geek. I'm butchering that one, I do apologise, but effectively what they do is that they look at certain um, textbooks and they look at certain um, they look at uh, Avril Coxhead's uh, academic word list and through some clever computing program I'm sure or perhaps they do sit there and go through it all they just identify what the highest utility morphemes are that middle school or late primary should kind of be aiming for to kind of teach their students to kind of provide the biggest bang for your buck in terms of that short instructional time that we have with students versus actually how the amount of words that we can get them to understand in the time that we have them with us. So yeah, it's quite interesting. Kieran, what are you reading for? Mine is also sort of literacy based as well. It's a blog called Dot Dot Dash by Jason Wade. And I read it, yeah, it must have been the end of last week. And I was like, wow, this is this just makes so much sense. You know, and there's not much to say other than you know, go out there and read it. It's maybe two, three minute read at most, but it, it, I think, brings a lot of clarity to something that perhaps most people don't necessarily think about, but I think really should think about. Yeah, agreed. Anything that um, Jason Wade puts out in regards to the teaching of spelling is definitely worth a, um, worth a read. So this week, the focus is spelling. 
And in the, in the run up to this, I was telling Chris that it's been quite a number of years since I'd actually taught spelling. So I'm going to ask all the questions this week, if that's okay. Obviously I'll offer my opinion where I have them, but um, yeah, mostly I'll be asking you guys to share your knowledge and your experience. And I think the first question to ask is, how much time should we dedicate to the teaching of spelling? There's no surefire way to know what the right amount of time is. If I were to hazard a guess at what I think the right amount would be, you'd be looking for between 20, possibly 30 minutes a day, if possible. But I think it'd be good to think of that time as not just as time to focus on spelling instruction but also how you might be able to morph that with a bit of wider vocabulary instruction as well so choosing a couple of tier two words for example or choosing some words that have um, a high utility morpheme and you might want to then kind of experiment and look and get to know and get the children to experiment with what they know about that morpheme if they know any other words that connect to that morpheme etc but as far as i'm aware and through the bits of research that i've done around what that optimum time is there's not much out there, but I'd hazard a guess around 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, I think as long as it's something little and often, it's probably going to have an impact. As with anything, you pays your money, you takes your choice. I mean, if you end up teaching more of it, then it might be impacting your the amount of time you have to spend on reading, writing, and other things that might impact um, spelling itself. So... Yeah, there are no hard and fast rules. I would say this, for a little while in my teaching career, because of a slightly odd timetable, we did spelling. We wanted to do it every day, and we ended up squeezing it into two days of the week with slightly longer sessions. Purely anecdotal, I definitely felt that that had less of an impact, even though it was the same amount of time. It was over two days instead of spread across five. So I'm sure this is how your timetable is likely to work anyway. But yeah, little and often makes a lot more sense than um, significant blocks of time. I might be jumping ahead here, but when you talk about selecting those tier two words and, you know, morphing a little bit, how centralized do you think that decision-making process should be? Is it up to us as individual teachers to choose those words? Or do you think there needs to be some sort of central place where we know where we're going to? I have to admit that I'm quite a fan of centralized bank of words that children are going to be guaranteed that they'll come across in their education it almost goes without saying that if we're linking this to spelling as well that there are obviously the words that are in the national curriculum for key stage two spelling lists i think it's only a couple of hundred altogether but they're still ones that you have to take account of discussing what neil um, was saying and something i'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later if we're talking about say morphology it's likely to be the case that if you want to deal with certain morphemes that you want to see them repeatedly in certain words. And it might be the case that the, actually the words themselves don't matter precisely as much as the fact that you see individual morphemes repeatedly under those circumstances. But it's much easier to do that and to sequence that and to know it's going to come repeatedly if you do say, here are the words that we're going to, going to be dealing with across key stage two, say, I think. Yeah, I'd echo what Chris says. I think I'm a big fan of centralization just from the point that there are people nerdy enough like myself and Chris who enjoy doing this where perhaps you know a one form entry school teacher teaching everything else do they have the time to 
do it? Is that going to be their, you know, is that going to be the area that we're going to say, do you know what, I really want you to think really hard and deeply about what keywords you want the children to learn or what key morphemes bar whatever has been you know, given in the national curriculum? Probably not, but I wouldn't be too upset if there was a teacher who thought, oh, I actually really wanted my children to learn what this particular morphine was, as long as they're covering everything else. So I think it's one of those things where, yes, we can say, here's our core, but there's still enough wiggle room that if a teacher wants to bring in their own idea, or perhaps it comes out through perhaps you know, a, a book that they're reading um, during class, yeah, then I think they should have that. Yeah, I think we have to take into account that there's a certain level of frustration when it comes to teaching writing and spelling and this sort of thing and you just come across a word spelt wrong over and over again you have every right as a teacher to go you know what I'm, ad I'm addressing it I don't care if it's in our spelling curriculum this needs sorting so yeah there has there has to be that flexibility um, as there always is for teachers to be able to tackle things that relate to their own class or even just the things that irritate them personally when children spell them wrong so yeah flexibility is essential my own sanity was the word morph used as a verb or did i just mishear you talking about morphology neil did indeed use morph as a, uh, a verb it was a cracking little pun unintentional or not but, um, i was sitting here nodding along <laughs> oh, thank goodness because for a second there when you were talking i thought oh no i've totally misheard what he said <laughs> no, no no i did get it in there what then does effective teaching of spelling look like so <laughs> I think for me, I've been really trying to really condense what I think spelling should be. And I think it's probably worth telling listeners at this point, we're focusing this episode perhaps beyond basic code knowledge and phonics at this stage. We really are kind of looking at what this looks like lower key stage two through to year six. But these principles would obviously, I hope, expand into lower secondary school as well. At this stage when we think about year three I think the principle that we need to teach is not necessarily the spelling of certain words although they will be doing that but it's really about making the complexities of English orthography just as transparent to the learner as possible I'm sure um, listeners if they've listened to some of Chris's episodes they've heard him talk about the depth of um, English orthography in that it's not transparent at all and that there's layers upon layers upon layers of complexity in there and so from that we need to be honest with ourselves is that it's not really worth our time trying to teach students how to spell every single word because there's just not enough time to do it yet clearly there is a way that we can all become spellers because there are plenty of people who do and so what effective teaching of spelling looks like for me is kind of identifying how we can most effectively get that complexity of English orthography and make it as transparent to the learner as possible. And I think what that all comes down to is that when we're kind of teaching spelling that we maintain those elements of the alphabetic principle. So we think about really that it's, um, you know, sound first, less, although I'm sure we'll get into rules later on, we're not kind of relying so much on quote unquote spelling rules. I think we need to really kind of make children really think carefully about what they're doing when they're spelling. So really thinking hard about are the activities that we're giving uh, suitable, really consider how 
a child should spend that spelling time and perhaps how structured that program can be structured in a way. And I think it's important that people know, and I was listening to Chris earlier about how he talks about the English language isn't just a phonemic language, but it's a, a, a morphophonemic language. So there are these elements of morphology that we need to bring into it at about year three level, because that should be the stage where children um, have mastered, hopefully mastered, uh, much of the phonetic code. And so we can start bringing in that other layer of code that kind of sits above phonics, that morphological element, where we can really kind of start getting children to think about what these, the small, the smallest meaning, that's what a morpheme is. It's a bit of a word that has the smallest amount of meaning effectively. It doesn't have to be a whole word in itself. It can be something from Latin, something like Greek, like AD, ad can be a morpheme, for example. So for me, and I'll let Chris come in now, it's just about that key message for me is just making that complexity of English orthography as transparent as possible. Yeah, Neil's touched on a load of really important stuff there. Um, I agree entirely with the idea that the teaching of phonics um, has to kind of link to our teaching of spelling. In other words, it needs to be aligned with that same logic, the same idea that where possible, we're finding links between sounds and spellings, and we're drawing attention to those sound spelling correspondences. We also need to, of course, recognize that English is a mess in its orthography, effectively. It's changed over time. Words have come in from other places. It, it just doesn't fit particularly neat patterns in a lot of cases. Now, in the vast majority of the language, we can say things like, well, this, um, the, this set of letters or this letter represents this sound. But sometimes it's a bit more iffy, for want of a better phrase. If we're looking, for example, at the sound spelling correspondences in a word like pure, well, the p represents, is represented by the letter P, but what's going on with the your sound? We've got the y and or, how is that being represented by those three letters? It is, and we just kind of have to deal with it as a unit, but breaking it down using really neat logical phonics rules doesn't quite fit there. And there is an acceptance, I think, by those who really know about phonics that it is our best fit in a lot of cases. And there are cases where it just doesn't quite fit together as nicely as we'd like. Another great example of that is things like split digraphs. A word like dive, being rep the I in dive being represented by an IE split digraph is one way of looking at things. It's not necessarily the best way. It's just kind of historically what phonics programs have done. Whereas it might be more sensible to think of dive as the, the letter I on its own representing the I sound and the VE representing V because that makes more sense when we turn dive into diving. For example, we don't then have to say, oh no, now the I is representing something different. So in, in all of our kind of spelling rules of phonics, there are occasions where we're going, yeah, this is sort of our best fit. And the deeper we get into English orthography, the more that we're looking to understand its wider patterns, the more that implicitly we're giving this sense that, yeah, these patterns fit, or the, the things that we learned in phonics fit are in a good way of describing things, but we also need to start looking at other things. So this is where morphology, for example, comes in. We can, we can talk about with children specific morphemes. I'm not, I don't think there's any real value about discussing the differences between, say, 
inflectional and derivational morphemes with them necessarily but we need to kind of teach them we do need to see that there there are there are instances of each i mean so you were mentioning bringing morphology into year three and i think you're dead right it becomes explicit perhaps uh, it's best to make it explicit in year three four five six worth noting that we are implicitly teaching bits of morphology further down the school with things like plurals obviously as um an example of you know an inflectional morpheme it's just that we move into these derivational morphemes like un for example and um, er turning something from a verb into a noun as we move up the school as well i agree i love the idea of combining it with vocabulary teaching those people who you know follow me on twitter and see me banging on about the same stuff all the time will know that there's some bits and pieces i've put out there that try and link spelling to vocabulary teaching so i won't go into that more but i do think that they can be integrated it's it's interesting the idea of rules because we think of a rule as something that can't be can't be broken can't have an exception that's what makes it a rule but at the same time a lot of the stuff that's in the national curriculum that does relate to rules is actually pretty sensible so things like recognizing that often when we pluralize a word that ends in a Y, it becomes IES. Teaching it as a rule might not be sensible, but teaching it as a, as a wider pattern is probably a pretty sensible thing. And there is some research to suggest that teaching these purely spelling patterns, these things that don't necessarily have their logic in phonology is a pretty you know, sensible thing to do. I think that's a paper that Neil you highlighted earlier today that I had a, quick, a quick look through by Galushka et al. 2020. Well worth checking out for people who are really interested in the subject. People I respect on the subject of spelling, like Charlotte McKechnie, she talks about the value of syllabifying words, as does uh, John Walker of Sounds Right fame. And I, I found that to be quite a useful thing for children to be able to do in terms of breaking up the word and taking it piece by piece. And equally, both of them would advocate saying the sounds as they write the word as a means of learning and embedding spellings, embedding, as I said earlier, this link between sounds and spellings. I don't think there's necessarily any research to back this up beyond things relating to generic pedagogy, but I find peer quizzing to be quite a valuable thing to do. You know, little set of flashcards, a peer tests a peer, and if they get it right, they put it to one side. If they get it wrong they put it to the back of the deck and they keep going through them until so they see the ones that they struggle with a little bit more just a low pressure way to make sure children are doing lots of spelling and along those lines lots of writing in spelling sessions i've seen spelling sessions that don't include lots of writing lots of actually trying to drag it out of your head and put it in the right order and it needs to happen lots i think otherwise stuff isn't going to go in I guess the last thing to mention that I haven't kind of covered is that I do think that the best way or one of the best ways to encourage quality spelling is lots of reading. As Neil said kindly earlier, I have said a lot about um, orthographic learning on the podcast and effectively orthographic learning as you read is about learning the wider patterns of English orthography of our spelling system, these statistical regularities. Well, if you're going to develop those through reading, and we do, then presumably they are going to have a direct impact on how good you are at then putting that into practice. Though it is, of course, harder to spell a word than it is merely to recognise it. 
I think there's just a few things that I'd like to not come back on because I agree with everything Chris said, but a few things I'd kind of like to add in just to add a bit more clarity to my idea of teaching, making that complexity as transparent as possible. Something I've been kind of like trialing with my years, the year six class that I teach right now is that some work, if people are familiar with um, why children can't read and what we can do about it by Diane McGuinness, she kind of uses what um, is called the frequency principle and she kind of outlines the structures of how statistically likely it is that a certain sound will be spelt a certain way and so for example according to her the most frequent way of spelling the or sound as in the word law is aw the second most likely way to spell or is au the third o-u-g-h and the fourth a-u-g-h and so what i'm trying now is kind of explicitly teaching and layering those statistical likelihoods with my students right now so that they know if I don't know what or it is in this particular word I'll try this spelling of or because I know this one is the it's most likely to be that one then there will be a bit of visual memory in there because as Chris just said because reading is visual memory so you can look at it and you can kind of be like, oh, yeah, well, I know that sounds spelling correspondence, whereas spelling, it's harder because you don't have that. You are in fact trying to create that visual representation. So you have to think a bit harder about it. Then you can kind of see, well, OK, I don't think that one looks quite right. So I'll try the next one. So what I'm trying to really kind of teach my students right now is that they're really clear, almost out of context, which makes it quite difficult that they actually know how many common GPCs there are for pretty much the main vowels right now. And we'll look at consonants later on. But I'm finding that being quite a useful bit of work that I'm doing just because it shows me that they actually, it's reinforcing those um, uh, spelling correspondences, but also it's not then just a bit of guesswork. There's that statistical likelihood, that, that statistical learning going on within them that's making them kind of try to match that spelling to the correct um, correspondence so that's an interesting piece of work that I'm kind of currently playing on and it seems to be going quite well right now. The word editing I have to double check every time because if you think about the wider patterns in English of how you would expect editing to be spelt you would expect it to have that double t because otherwise and forgive me for, you know, broad brushstrokes here, you almost expect it to be editing as soon as you've only got that single T, but it is single T. You spell it with two T's and it, it just feels right that it should have two T's. It fits with the wider statistical patterns of English, but it just isn't quite right for that word. But the fact that it feels so wrong to write it with one T initially shows just how powerful this kind of wider orthographic pattern spotting is because I'm, you almost feel like you're going against that pattern spotting that you've built up through you know thousands of hours of reading. Have to be really careful with our schwas when we speak so when you are spelling definitely need to make sure you're using a, a spelling voice or if you want to make it slightly more child-friendly a robot voice whatever it might be so you're really just kind of making sure that in if you're trying to spell amazing we're not getting that uh that you really are saying amazing if you wanted to syllabify it etc if you hadn't brought that up i think that totally would have bypassed me and it's such an important thing you know the use of a spelling voice where you can where you 
add some of the aspects that aren't necessarily there. Going to sound like a broken record here, but I'm sure I read something really interesting by Jason Wade on the subject of spelling voice. I think it was a whole blog post and a long one on the subject. So yeah, definitely check him out. <laughs> if that's one thing you take away from this podcast, <laughs> check out Jason Wade on Twitter. Follow him. He's very interesting. Definitely. So yeah, just being aware, just be wary of where you are putting that schwa in, or perhaps words like government and environments, where as we say the word, we don't necessarily um, perhaps pronounce the n part. Just clarify that with the children, and that's really gonna help them understand how those words work. And that's again, you can look then into the etymology of those words as well, and that kind of helps to explain why these words then are explain are spelt the way that they are but the history of spelling is not one for this podcast that said of course like 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 you mentioned etymology i mean obviously that's tight links with uh, morphology but we're talking about vocabulary we're talking about spelling it would be a real shame not to make sure that children are getting a grasp of really important latin and greek root words as part of that but yeah you're right that's more of a vocabulary thing but yeah bit of a hobby horse of mine I'm really disappointed we didn't get more examples of the robot voice. I was enjoying that. I've got three questions sort of following up from just listening there and answer as you as you sort of see fit. The first thing I'd be really interested in is to know more about the two different types of morphology. And it may be that I haven't got that far in the Don't Shoot the Deputies episode because I definitely am about halfway through at the time of this chat. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to know more about that on, on almost that deep level. Could you bullet point our conversation? So the effect of teaching of spelling, what do they look like as actions? And is there a program that you would recommend, obviously not sponsored or anything, that matches up with your pedagogical approach to the teaching of spelling? Well, I'll answer the first one because I think that related to something I was talking about, the idea of inflectional and derivational morphemes. I am by no means an expert on this. I just know enough to know that there are, you've got effectively your free morphemes, as far as I'm aware, which are the kind of the, the ones that can sit on their own. Then you've got your bound morphemes are the ones that have to be attached to another, to a word, to a free morpheme effectively in order to exist. And of those bound morphemes, they come in two types. There's the inflectional morphemes, which you can think of those as the ones that they don't change the, like the class of the word. They don't turn a verb into a noun or a verb into an adjective. So for example, plurals, comparatives, superlatives, uh, changes in tense, that sort of thing. Whereas your derivational morphemes, the ones that are obviously kind of derived um, from the original part of the word, these are things that will change the meaning in a significant way. So they can be prefixes and suffixes, whereas the inflectional ones are suffixes only. So these derivational ones are prefixes and suffixes. So they can be like un and dis as an example of a prefix and suffixes, they can be things like ly to turn an adjective into an adverb, for example, or er to compute as a verb into a computer, a noun. So that's a derivational morpheme. I hope that answers your question about the, the two, those two kinds of, it's still all morphology, but there's effectively two types of morphemes that I described, two types of bound morphemes. 
in answer to your second question, I would say as a, an attempted bullet point list, firstly, the teaching of spelling needs to be aligned with phonics, in particular, the phonics program of your school and the logic behind it and the way that you teach that. Um, but also the second thing, it needs to recognize that English orthography is complex and has baked into it morphology. And so thus we want to be teaching things like morphemes. We also want to teach arguably Latin and Greek root words. And the next thing I would say is that you want to make sure that your spelling lessons involve lots of writing and repetition effectively. Implied in what I've said before is that it can be combined with vocabulary teaching more broadly. It might be valuable to syllabify words and to say sounds as we write words. Peer quizzing might be something that's useful. I've certainly found it to be useful in my time of teaching. Lots of reading will support spelling as well, though this might not be your spelling lessons. And the use of a spelling voice to help enunciate sounds that have either been elided or sounds that otherwise might be more difficult to pick up on in terms of the right choice of um, letter. So yeah, those would be the ones I'd go for. In answering your third question, I might take a pass on that one. I think there's lots of good things out there and I wouldn't want to accidentally miss out something of a high quality. Anything that kind of tackles all of the things we've just mentioned will work fine. You can probably work out from some of the recommendations we've made already in this episode who we think has some really good ideas around spelling, but I wouldn't like to point in a particular direction towards a program because I'm sure there's lots of good stuff out there. Brilliant. I, I didn't realise I was on uh, Breakfast with Mar and such <laughs> proficient politicians answering questions. <laughs> so then I think most people listening will be keen to know what pitfalls we should try and avoid when teaching spelling, if it isn't directly the inverse of what we've said. I think there's a lot to be said that a fair lot of it is the inverse of what is said, but it's probably, it might help the listeners kind of be wary of a few. You know, there might be some programs out there that use some of these things that perhaps, you know, they may, it may then make them reconsider what they're going for. So certainly anything that tries to form spelling by looking at word shapes. There's no reason or rhyme why it should be there because the different word shapes could be for anything. There's a multitude of words that could fit in various different word shapes. It doesn't help you understand the spelling whatsoever at all. I think certainly as um, Chris mentioned, avoid spelling on a computer some interesting research by Cunningham and Stanovich, I think around 1990, which kind of supports some other research that was done in the uh, mid 80s that found that children learn to spell faster and more accurately by the physical act of writing the, those words, as opposed to just pressing something on a keyboard. And I think because of what we know now about orthographic mapping, we know that when we write that word, and say that sound, it kind of helps map that particular grapheme folding correspondence. So that's definitely something I'm not, that's not to say that, you know, throw out your computers and never use any computers at all for spelling, but it's just something to be wary of. Perhaps those initial lessons are done with writing. 
interestingly, and it links back to what Chris and I said earlier about how that visual memory can often help. And so, and how reading lots is going to be really useful to kind of help with our spelling because we can successfully orthographically map the sound spelling correspondence in front of us. And then from that, we can start using this, you know, we can start statistically learning these patterns and things like that. At such a young age, it's probably not a good idea to give children multiple choice questions where the um, of spellings where they need to kind of pick the correct spelling from a list of spellings that might have alternate you know alternative spellings but are still wrong because it could effectively interrupt and interfere with that statistical learning that's going on and because they're taking in all that information it's not necessarily helping with that building that those statistical patterns you're then giving your own brain so certainly kind of avoid such things we need to find the correct spelling from misspelt options and again there are some rules that are useful but i'm not a big fan of rules i think i'm a better fan of the term statistical likelihoods where chris has already mentioned you know it's if we're teaching plurals that S at the end, you know, that's a useful statistical likelihood, unless you know that it's an irregular word where it's not going to be a plural S at the end to make it plural from that singular. Thinking about my own teaching here for years, avoid pointless activities would be, it sounds obvious, you know, it's pointless, of course avoid it, but let me be more precise. I did loads of word searches. For years, I did word searches just as something to do. It's like, oh, that's that's nice and easily planned. I just print that off, hand it out. They're happy with their colouring pencils. They are not necessarily doing a great deal of word recognition. They're seeing each word once, and most of the time, they are just looking at a big old jumble of letters. So that seems like a particularly inefficient use of time for spelling. In fact, in short any activity which takes a lot of time but doesn't involve a great deal of engagement with the spelling of words sounds like an obvious thing to say tell that to me for the first half of my career not an evidence-based thing here just a personal reflection on a decent amount of time in the profession i'm not a fan of high pressure spelling tests i think when well i speak to teachers and a lot of them say but my kids love it and what they mean is i i think I hear lots of children say they love it. Well, it's quite possibly the children you hear are the ones who do well. The kids who hate it, the kids who dread it, the kids who fail at it despite their best efforts are those that you don't hear. They're the ones keeping quiet. It's also one of these things that some children get a lot of support with at home and quite a lot of children don't get any support with at home. And we're effectively giving them a chance to succeed or fail based on that level of support. And that just never has never sat right with me. I think that's one of those things where we tackle it in school. If we wanted to say to, you know, parents, here's a list of spellings. They're going to be looking at these. They follow a particular, um, there's some sound spelling correspondences or some morphemes in there. And if you want to learn them, wonderful. But then making that into a test where perhaps children read out their score in front of a class no that's a that's a big no-no for me personally if you do that and it works for you and you don't see negative consequences to that then perhaps don't let me put you off but i hope maybe you might think twice about it i'm not a fan of look cover right check and that seems to be a very common way of dealing with spellings i think it links to what neil said earlier about word shapes i think there's an extent to which look cover right check is 
encouraging children to just look at the whole thing and then have a crack at it rather than looking at the sound spelling correspondences or particular morphemes. So yeah, I prefer strategies that don't encourage children to look at words as a whole unit. When you mention time tests, is there then a big enough difference or distinction to be drawn between something similar in a mathematics context, where, for instance, you need really rapid recall of, of key information? Or, do, or does your distaste for that kind of situation transcend across to mathematics as well as, as spelling? Oh, I have no problem whatsoever with children having to do something against a time limit. I have no problem with quizzing, even in even spelling. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. It's the high pressure aspect of it. It's the nature of, if someone said to me, oh, well, I do a spelling test and we do 10 words. And at the end, the children mark it themselves. And I don't even, I make a point of saying to them, correct your answers when you're done, then fold it up, put it in your pocket, take it with you. I'm not even looking at that. I think that's, um, I'm fine with that. As soon as you are saying I'm collecting that in and I'm looking at that, that starts to bother me. It isn't them, it's not them trying to get better at something, it's them trying to avoid your disapproval. And as soon as you're in a situation where that is like children's motivation, I think bad things are on the way. I think it's very difficult to avoid that. So yeah, I've got no problem with quizzes and it, it's the, as soon as, you, as something becomes high pressure and high stakes, then yeah, I think it has more power to be detrimental, even if there are you know positives to be gleaned from it, like in that, test you could say oh well I can use that formatively though to know which question or sorry which words children are consistently misspelling perhaps you can but I think there's a in a lot of circumstances the, the gains from that are significantly outweighed by the losses I was going to ask about books say cover right check because I know that you weren't necessarily keen on it when you say send home some patterns or some likelihoods what do you think that looks like whenever we're sending spelling work home? Because it's it's a key part of most homework policies, isn't it? So what what should what should I be expecting my children to come home with from school when they're learning to spell? So for me, I think something that makes the children kind of analyze the words really carefully. So I know it's something I put on Twitter. I think towards the end of uh, the two thousand and twenty 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 one academic year. I called it word inspector, but effectively you have your spellings and I'd ask the children to write that spelling out in one column with syllable lines in it. And then I'd ask them to write it again with sound lines underneath it, as well as the syllable lines. And then I would ask them to write it out again, which is slightly different to look, cover, say, check, because I actually want them to think quite deeply about that structure of that word, but also then in the final column is to write out the particular uh, spelling of whatever particular sound that we are focusing on. So they may have 10 words, say, but it's not just that, they are writing that word out a lot, but each time they write that word out, they are looking for something slightly different and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And it builds up so they're really kind of grasping how to spell that word but again I'm not interested or certainly the more I kind of learn about how to teach spelling I'm not doing that to see if they can spell the word I'm doing it to make sure can they put a word into a syllable correctly can they accurately identify the sounds in the word 
and can they actually correctly identify the spelling of this particular sound? And the way that I'll organize that will be, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in, in regards to that kind of frequency principle. So the highest or the most frequent spellings would be at the top and the least frequent spellings would be, um, the least frequent spelling of that particular sound would be at the bottom. And then depending if it, there was some, if there was a particular morpho morphological focus on that as well, I might say, can you think of any other words that use this particular morpheme? That's kind of where I'm at right now, but subject to change. To go in a slightly different direction, perhaps controversially, I would send nothing home. My choice, I think if you've got 20 minutes at home and you could do 10 minutes of reading and 10 minutes on the spellings, just do 20 minutes of reading instead. That's I. My suspicion is that the, the time you spend on those spellings would be better invested into reading. If a parent says to me, but we, you know what, we do 15, 20 minutes of reading and we just want a different activity to do, fair enough. I can, you know, I can send home though that week's set of spellings that are organized perhaps around a particular sound that is spelt differently across those words. That's how we organize it at our school. I'm sure there are other logical ways, but I wouldn't be personally particularly fussed about spellings going home. I'd rather that, rather that time be dedicated to reading. And I've got a suspicion that that will lead to better spelling over the longer term because there is this Matthew effect with reading that perhaps isn't i mean spelling is going to contribute to that because spelling can contribute to better reading but i'd rather just ch children just spend that time get, getting into books or being read to so they can see those wider orthographic patterns and lots of them i've got a feeling that children accessing and um, enjoying books and taking in all of that information and the breadth of it that they get from reading is going to have an, a better, a greater impact over the longer term than focusing on a specific group of spellings, at least at home anyway. Just my, um, my, my way of looking at things, I think. It sounds like you're, you're pretty closely aligned because Neil's focus doesn't necessarily explore those bits that you're avoiding by not sending things home. So I think you, know, you could probably marry those two responses up. And also we should, we should probably talk about homework in the near future. So, I mean, you guys have fielded quite a few curveballs that you didn't expect from me today, just because I was really interested in what you were saying. So maybe we'll finish on a nice, easy question to answer. What happens when we get a pupil in, say, year three with a reduced knowledge of sound spelling correspondence? What do we do? Naturally, if a child is in any year group and they don't have a decent bank of sound spelling correspondences or the skills required to use those sound spelling correspondences, then it's time for a phonics intervention. That's the simple, you're right, there is a kind of quite neat answer to that one. If I may, I'd say an equally interesting question that's kind of the flip side of that is, well, what if you come across a child in year three who does have that bank of sound spelling correspondences and does have the phonemic skills that you would expect of their age in order to use those sound spelling correspondences, but still their spelling isn't where you would expect it to be at that age what happens then because obviously there a phonics intervention isn't necessarily what you're after i would say at that stage this is where you are getting into the real meat of what we've talked about today which is how can we explore english orthography and obviously wider reading is going to be a big part of that the amount of decoding that you do in your school day and that they do at home but particularly the first is going to have a massive impact on that and again we go back into these other parts that may of English orthography 
such as the baked in morphology when we can start talking about etymology these sorts of things that's where we want to go but it's interesting there that i think it's that's it's a really good question because it pinpoints something that a child may come to you with and it suggests a school that are doing the right things in terms of assessment so often when you come to questions like this or where you're asked questions like this it isn't that precise it's just things like got a kid in year three struggling to spell what do i do and the only answer you can give to that is well it depends let's put some assessments in place and let's work out where the weaknesses might be and then go from there so yeah, I really liked your question because it suggested that it's coming from someone who's got a background in enough of a background in this that they have done the requisite assessments to see what actually needs thinking about. Not much I can add on to that, only that should I ever be in the position where I get full kind of carte blanche choice as to what happens um, in the curriculum, I would say that first half term if not full term of year three we don't move to kind of explicit kind of spelling lessons we still kind of look at advanced codes so we kind of use that as a time to check and make sure because if you think about it they're not quite there by the time they finished year two potentially they haven't quite got all the sound spelling correspondences we wanted to have they've had six weeks off depending on your context, do you know how much reading those children are actually doing over those six weeks? And so I think something worth probably investigating is actually that first half term, you continue with a phonics program, you perhaps do some benchmarking in that first week, have a look at what sound spelling correspondences are perhaps missing, and then use that first kind of half term to kind of effectively reteach those GPCs as you would do per a phonics lesson. And I think that would actually help bridge that natural gap there is between phonics ending at key stage one and something completely different happening in key stage two. And I think it depends as well um, how reduced the knowledge of this particular child is. If they're only ever so kind of slightly behind, if you are organizing your spelling through a sound first approach, yes, they might need a little bit more of a bump of intervention, but if you know that they're gonna to come to those sounds again and again and again anyway, it may not need as a full on intervention as you know being taken out and to do some phonics. So I think it depends on that continuum of where they are at that particular time. So I know this definitely won't be the last time that we visit spelling. I think if anyone has had their interest piqued, then I think the, the Tadabe Discord is probably the best place to ask questions so we can focus future episodes. Because I know for certain that both of you are interested in exploring this probably as much as you explored reading over the last couple of years. So that'd be really interesting to see you know, where that conversation takes us. About five different people have recommended me Lynn Stone's book, Spelling for Life, and I've not read it yet but I would be really interested in other people's kind of, I'm looking forward to reading it and I'm interested in other people's responses to it. Yeah, I, th I think tonight really demonstrates just how hard you guys work for this podcast because you've both done a full day at school. The preparation that you've done, you know, to answer what I thought were four pretty straightforward questions, but actually gone deeper than I ever could have imagined. So just, you know, thank you very much to both of you. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for having me. And to everyone at home, thanks for listening.